Hello, and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Rob Pickles, here with Trevor Connor and special guest, Dr. Andy Pruitt. Dr. Pruitt literally wrote the book on endurance sports health. He founded the Boulder Center for Sports Medicine and developed the body geometry system for Specialized, so he understands how to keep endurance athletes functioning and pain-free. We saved up your questions on pains and injuries to discuss with Dr. Pruitt, and today we talk about resolving back, knee, and saddle pain, as well as staying healthy while training increases. A quick note on this episode, Coach Connor is back up in Canada, and his audio quality isn't great. Our apologies for that. He was probably being attacked by a polar bear in a snowstorm while eating poutine. Don't worry, he's very sorry. Now, on to our episode. Preparing for a race, doing at-home lactate testing, reviewing post-race data. It's important to understand how to test, what the numbers mean, and how to change your training based on your data. From training peaks to whoop, sifting through your data can feel like it requires a master's degree. Good news, we have those. Plus, over 30 years of coaching and data analysis experience. You go race, leave the data analysis to us. Book your data analysis session today at fasttalklabs.com. Well, Dr. Pruitt, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk. We haven't had you on in a bit, so it's it's a real pleasure to have you back with us. Well, thanks, Trevor. It's always great to be here. I love this opportunity to chat with you guys and share what I may or may not know. You know, here's a fun fact for us to think about. Andy, the last time you and I were on the podcast together was episode nine, 211 episodes ago. We sat across from each other recording a podcast with Trevor. And I just, I thought that was incredible to think all the way back. We're OGs. I am a very OG, but what was our topic that day? Oh God, it was a, it was a round table, I think, <gasps> just on all things sort of bike fitting and sports science and wow. physiology. Yeah, yeah, it was a good one. Everybody should go back and listen to episode nine. So that was episode nine. Yeah, that's back when all I had was a recorder. I had no idea what I was doing. And basically, I was just reaching out to people I know saying, please help me. And because Andy and I were on it, it was one of your best episodes, even though you didn't know what you were doing. So there you go. There you go. I actually do remember that because I have a black and white, really nice photo that I use sometimes as my computer desktop from that episode. That's scary. Uh, <laughs> so Q&A episode today, guys. Uh, <laughs> so 200 and how many episodes later? Yeah, we're not any better. Not any better. <laughs> yes, we are. Yes, we are. All right. Well, hey, Dr. Pruitt, we're here. We have a whole bunch of questions. A lot of them are about medical and bike fit. I think that you're more than qualified to answer it. I think Trevor and I are hopefully going to keep up. But here's our first question. It's going to be from Ben Allen, and it's going to be about back health. They're looking for some advice on strength work. And the question is this, I'm a 40-year-old avid cyclist and have been seeing a lot of progress in my training, but recently I was struck by a big setback. I've had some nagging back pain for a bit, but a few months ago it exploded in quotation marks. I lost a lot of power in my left leg. Turns out I have an L4 herniation. PT helped a lot, but the pain is not fully gone. Guess that's something I have to get used to at my age, but I don't like it. I've been doing research on strength and conditioning work that I can do to improve my back's health. I've been very surprised to read multiple articles saying to avoid strength machines, which isolate muscles and any sort of rotation in the back. What's your feeling about this? 
And what is the best approach to strengthen my back and keep it healthy? Let's talk about lumbar disc physiology at the cellular level first, right? So our discs are like jelly donuts that are hyper-filled. So you've got a one square centimeter space with two square centimeters of jelly in it. So it's hyper-pressurized and that's how the disc absorbs pressure and how it changes shape with spinal mobility. But as we age, the discs do become dehydrated. They may occur a split. And if you do the wrong moment at that time, the split actually spills out some of the jelly, and that's a herniated disc. 80% of these kinds of episodes will resolve themselves in time, where the body basically goes in and, and sucks up that extra material, takes the pressure off the nerve, which is the numbness and weakness in the left leg. So 80% of these episodes resolve themselves if given the time to do so. But 80% of those episodes will reoccur because that's become a weakened spot in that disc. So there are medical ways to expedite the healing of that disc. Some people cauterize the herniation. Some people need to go actually go in surgically and remove that material, all of which leave the the disc in itself scarred and weakened and has less jelly in it now, so it does its job less well. So that's that's the physiology in a layman's way of thinking about how a disc works, right? So the spine is a really unique structure in that it's the only rigid structure we have in the abdominal kind of tube. The rest of it is all dynamic structure, which is muscular and fascial. So the spine has to be supported with muscular strength. It has to be. Otherwise, it's going to do the job all by itself and it will fail, such as your disc herniation. So strengthening is incredibly important. So physical therapists help to identify the weaknesses you have in your core system. So attacking those weaknesses which you've acquired either through this injury or acquired over time. Cyclists, we tend to be pretty static in our position. So we do acquire weaknesses in the core as a cyclist. So we really need to attack those weaknesses off the bike. So I'm a big believer in core strength, low back strength, and even isolation by machinery. If you've identified that a certain movement is a need you have, and there's a machine that will isolate that movement and help you strengthen it, then use it. If it needs to be a floor exercise or a ball exercise instead of a machine, that's all well and good too. So free weights are probably the most dangerous. But if you are around track cyclists much, you'll know they live in the weight room because they need that explosive box jump, deadlift, you know, all those kinds of things. So there is a place for the free weight world and there's a place for the machine world and there's a place for floor exercises but first, you have to identify the weaknesses that you have and the need you have in strengthening those. Now, what about range of motion, right? So you splint yourself if you've got this L4 rupture. You're going to self-splint around that injury, and you can acquire some scar. You can acquire a loss of range of motion. So regaining normal function is the key to any kind of therapy and following this. So bike fit does play a role not knowing what he looks like on his, on his bike. But as we roll that lumbar spine forward, think about that jelly in that disc. It's going to get pushed back as the disc is, is going to become a wedge. And so the back portion of that disc is going to be pressurized by that jelly. And so an aggressive 
front end of a bike with a lumbar spine that lacks mobility is going to put more pressure on the posterior aspect of all the disc in the lumbar spine. So bike fit does play a role. Range of motion plays a role. Strength plays a role. Andy, I want to touch on something you brought up of identifying the weakness that he has and addressing that, right? Mm -hmm. Because you know, uh, strength training, a ton of calf raises isn't going to help his, his lumbar disc issue, potentially not. Now, if somebody does have a known injury like this, an L4 disc injury, does that give us any insight into weaknesses they may have? Or is this really working with a knowledgeable individual who can assess this person and their movement patterns and their strength and their flexibility? Is that the way that listeners have to go about it? Well, let's go back to the calf raises for a second. <laughs> so with an L4 or L5, you may acquire a calf weakness because of that pressure on the nerve. He may require a lot of downstream strengthening that occurred because of the, of the pressure on the nerve. Yes, yeah, he may need to do a lot of calf raises. But working with someone to help you identify those self, you know, we, we talk in the medical profession, he, he who has themselves as a, as a physician has a fool for a patient, Right. Um, so we have to be really careful about self-care. So it does take some uh, objective and subjective help from an outsider, typically, to help identify the needs following a back injury. That's certainly something that I learned. So I have a, an L4 herniation. I've had a problem with it since I was 16 years old. Um, and it got really bad back around 2015, 2016, to the point that I missed out on a lot of the season for a couple years because my back was constantly in pain. And I know the disc doesn't go out. That's an expression, but whatever's actually happening, that was happening to me multiple times a year. The solution for me ended up being I bought one of those back extension machines. And now every morning I get up and get on that back extension machine for five to 10 minutes. And my back has not bugged me in years because of that. But there are other people who would have an L4 problem. If they got in a back extension machine, it would put them in the hospital. So, you know, the, the, the one thing I've really learned out of my own experience is the solution is very individual. I don't think there is a single solution that's going to help everybody. Absolutely. You keyed a couple things in my mind. Compensation. So you had a long-term back injury, and we are great compensators. So part of compensation is to self-splint against the injury and to build other muscles to do what is not now being done because of the injury. So compensation over a long period of time is very difficult to reverse. So getting on top of it early on is really important. You self-found your solution. And that sadly, that's what a lot of us do. We wander through the forest looking for a tree that's going to solve our particular issue. You're right. Extension, if you've got a bulging posterior disc, extension helps kind of put that thing back into place. So a good therapist is going to prescribe extension exercises once they know where that bulge is. But there are other people where extension would have maybe increased their issues. So self-exploration, if you're lucky, you might find a solution. I know a lot of people, including myself and all three of us who have self-explored our own issues and self-treated. And some of times we've been successful, sometimes we haven't. Trevor, I remember having to um, lay your bike over and help you get on it in the middle of a multi-day stage race. <laughs> they are the tour of the heat line. And, and, and you said to me, just get me on it. I'll be okay. <laughs> so it was getting on and off that was the problem, not, not pedaling. And we got you through it. So 
one of the scariest moments I ever had on a bike was so it was the second stage of Tour of the Gila. I was having a great stage. I had just broken away going up that first climb and was feeling really good. And there was this really sharp hairpin turn right near the top. I went around that turn and just twisted slightly wrong and just, you know, when people talk about hitting the ground, the the pain is so bad. That hit me, but I'm on a bike going full speed. So I kind of slumped down onto the top tube, but managed to keep myself up on the bike and then came over the top of the hill and had to do one of the more technical descents in American racing with my back on fire and went from broken away to the last person to finish that descent. You went from broken away to just broken. To just broken. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But just tell the listeners what really is happening. So you had multiple episodes of your back giving out, right? And that back giving out is typically a little more leaking through that wounded disc. Puts a little pressure out there. So you have the acuity of the disc itself being cracked. You have uh, swelling in the area. You have spasm to protect it. It's, it resolves over time. It's weakened. You didn't really do much about it. And boom, uh, five months later, you'll have another one and another one and another one. So over time, that disc really just totally leaks. It becomes totally dehydrated and has lost all of its jelly out of the donut and really becomes dysfunctional. So something else then has to happen. There's going to be arthritic changes around that disc level to stabilize it. There's just this, this cascade of events that occur at that level as that disc continues to leak, and then you've compensated quite well. So people say, yeah, it finally got better. It lasted, it was bad for five years, but now it's great. Well, it's great because it has finally lost all of its material, and it's settled down upon the vertebra above and below it, and it's going to kind of self-arthritically fuse. And people say, I used to have a lot of back pain. Now I'm just stiff, but it's not painful anymore. So that's kind of that cascade of events. So this poor guy with his L4 He needs to pursue a good therapeutic course, whether that is invasive, include injections or cauterization or surgery, and then off the bike PT. He needs to pursue all of those things or he will have that continued cascade of events. Yeah, I want to take this opportunity to to back up a little bit and and to broaden this because, you know, we all love to talk about ourselves. Here I am doing it. I've never had an L4, I've never had a disc issue, but I have had an SI joint issue that has plagued me since college. It actually was one of the things that prevented me from running, competing my senior year of college. For years, it would get out of whack, right? And it'd be painful. The muscle splinting was really a a source of the protection and the pain there. And the biggest thing that helped me was strength training but not traditional strength training like I was trying to do, not the squats and and everything else that I was doing to improve my performance. If anything, that would put me in a place that I would just hurt my SI joint again. But seeing physical therapists, learning about my body, learning about those weaknesses, and the thing that seems to have really helped was me working on hip stability, even though the muscles didn't necessarily cross to my sacrum, by controlling my hip strength, I was able to control my leg movement and the jarring that was occurring on my SI joint when I ran or played with my kids or, or tried to lift. So, you know, strength training itself, I don't think is necessarily a panacea for, for fixing back problems, right? I don't think that's the message we're saying. But the thing that I really want to take away from what Andy said before was identify your weaknesses and address those 
because they really could be the key, you know, to improving how you're feeling and how your body is functioning. We could talk backs all day and I would love it. So SI pain, right? So SI dysfunction or an SI joint, sacroiliac joint, which is slightly out of place, can mimic lumbar disease. And there have been a lot of MRIs taken and injections given, et cetera, for lumbar disease when it was really a slightly displaced SI joint. So make sure you've got the diagnosis right, number one. Number two, you talk about OGs. I'm really the old G here, right? So when I was in undergraduate school as an anatomy major, we basically learned that the sacroiliac joint did not move and that therefore don't worry about it unless there was a huge trauma like a car accident or something. The SI joint did not move. And it wasn't until I got out of school and began to practice and, and started working with athletic trainers and physical therapists that they finally convinced me that there is micro movement in the SI joint. I've taught my wife how to adjust mine. <laughs> so please, out there, listeners that know that the SI joint can absolutely mimic and create radiating leg pain. So learning how to adjust, self-adjust, and stabilize your SI joint, and there are medical treatments for it. If it's a hypermobile SI joint, I know the SI joint's critical in pregnant women for childbirth. If the SI joint doesn't move, then that baby's not coming through the birth canal. So thank you for bringing that up. The SI joint is crucial as a rule-out or confirm aspect of low back pain. I think it's really insightful that you brought up the misdiagnosis there because that's exactly what happened to me in college. Describing all the symptoms, all the things I was going through, they kept looking at my low back, my low back, my low back. And MRIs said, your discs are fine. I don't see any issues here. We don't know what to treat. And so I went essentially untreated and I would fall into this thing of on Monday, I would feel good. I would do a workout on the track. On Tuesday, I couldn't walk. By the weekend, I could walk again. On Monday, I would feel good. On Tuesday, I couldn't walk, you know, and like that. And I didn't really get any resolution or a proper diagnosis until, you know, Andy, you and I, our good friend, Tim Hilden, an extremely knowledgeable physical therapist said, hey, I think I know what this is, you know. And then through his treatment, you know, ultimately uh, really got my initial resolution there. But it has been a management thing ever since. So one last thing I just want to throw in, you know, we've talked about some of the things you can do. Another thing to be very careful about is, for lack of a better word, your your posture hygiene. So we talked about my experience at Gila. That's a good example. You know, we were an amateur team, which meant we were cramming a whole bunch of people into a small house. And I was sleeping on a really soft, awful couch. And I'm certain that's what caused me in the middle of the race to, to fall apart. I have also learned over the years through, through tough experience, if I'm traveling, I always travel with the sleep bags. If I go into a hotel or a house and there's a, a soft bed there, I'm better off just sleeping on the floor. Likewise, if there's a couch with no support, I avoid sitting. These are the other things you, you really have to be careful of. Sitting, standing, walking posture. Those are athletic skills. And cyclists, we tend to acquire this hip flexed, kyphotic, which is your upper back rolling forward to get that. We kind of create this on-bike posture that if we ride 10, 20 hours a week, it's a lot of time spent in that position. So we kind of acquire this cyclist posture. I, I can pick a cyclist out of a crowd at the movie theater, right? Especially an old one. So we do need to think about off-bike posture, sitting, standing, walking. Absolutely. Very nice. All right, guys. Well, man, we took that back question, you know, pretty broad. Let's focus back down a little bit. The next two questions are actually about the knee. 
So I'm going to read both of them together. And then uh, Trevor, let's give you the first crack at it. So the first one is from Jen Carson, and it says, fear of knee problems. I think this is something we might all relate to. I'm a reasonably competitive Category 3 rider. I'm trying to increase my training volume to get up to the Category 2 or even Category 1 level. But the last few years, I've suffered knee issues whenever I've increased my volume. I really want to make this my year, but I'm scared that my knees are going to keep preventing me from training the way I want. Is there anything I can do to protect my knees or strengthen them so that I don't go down the same rabbit hole again? And then as a second question, this one is from a Philip Darley. It's about the knee touching the top tube. Hi all, in episode 68, the knee touching the top tube was touched upon. Knee tracking and hip stability were mentioned as reasons. Does anybody have resources for further information on how to address this? So Trevor, I think with you, you know, in, in the coaching experience that you have and people trying to increase their volume, especially as they're trying to increase their level, is this something that you've dealt with in the past? You know, how do we make sure that Jen's knee doesn't get in the way of her achieving her goals? Yeah, I'm going to start by saying, I mean, we have one of the top experts, if not the top expert in the, in the world in the room when it comes to knee issues. So I'm not even going to try to touch that except to just say there's many types of knee issues. This is also not a monolith. But what I will say as a coach is this is something you see a lot with athletes, particularly athletes that are trying to raise their level. Everybody thinks it's just a, a matter of increasing your volume or finding that time to, to do more training. And I can't tell you how many athletes I've seen get frustrated because they make that time. And then because they haven't been doing their support work their bodies start basically falling apart. They start getting aches and pains and being fatigued and find that even though they now have that time, they can't take advantage of it. And I have actually seen that discourage a lot of athletes and, and cause them to quit. And in particular, I've seen a lot of them when they start putting in that volume, start getting knee pain and, and it really does mentally take them down a bit. And I always tell athletes before you raise your volume, you have to raise your support work, get your body ready to be able to handle that bigger volume. And I'll leave my response there. <laughs> well, those are all good points, Trevor, that's for sure. I think there's two questions, but they really go hand in hand. The fear of knee pain, because she's had it when she tries to increase her volume, which there's two pieces to volume, right? There's intensity and volume. And so I would ask her if I had the opportunities, does increased intensity also bring this on? Or is it purely time in the saddle that brings it on? Because they could be slightly separate things. Most female humans have a wider shallow pelvis, a greater hip angle, which leads them to having a more valgus knee, a more knock knee alignment. So for her, I'm, I'm assuming that she falls into that 80 or 90% of female phenotypes that has a valgus knee. So as she increases her volume or intensity, the knee is going to then, as the leg fatigues, it was going to drift more toward in toward the top tube. So it's gluteal work. It's the abductors, all the muscles that would hold the knee out, but it's also at the foot. So stance width plays a role here as does orthotics or forefoot canting. So there's two kinds of support we're looking for to support the knee. The knee is the victim caught between the hip and the foot. So there's two kinds of support. One is dynamic, meaning that we're going to accomplish this with strengthening of the glutes and other 
other abductors, and the other is structural support, which we accomplish by bike fit. And that's stance width and or in-shoe support to make sure the foot is not contributing to that valgus inclination, which takes us to the knee hitting the top tube. That can be a guy or a, or a gal, either one, that have that valgus alignment. If it's only one knee hitting the top tube, I question whether or not they're square on the saddle. In other words, if they've turned for some reason on the saddle, if the saddle is the wrong saddle and they're trying to seek support, they might move their pelvis or their sit bones to a place on the, on the saddle that makes their, their sitting more comfortable, but that also leaves them turned to one side, which would put one knee out away from the bike and drive the other knee in toward the bike. So you've got to solve the dynamic support with strengthening. You've got to solve the structural support with bike fit, which would include pedal choice and in-shoe structural support. And then you've got to make sure they're sitting on their saddle squarely. And I would go back to, what was her name, Jen? Jen was first, and then Philip was the knee touching the top two. Oh, so I would go back to Jen for a second. And so if it's only one knee, then it may be her saddle, believe it or not. The answer to both those questions is the same. Yeah. You know, Andy, I think that that's something that I've spent a lot of time watching you fit and sometimes helping every once in a while, Yeah, you know, and it, and it is incredible how the knee is the victim. We all say, oh, knee pain. And you look at the knee, you go straight to the knee and nine times out of 10, the knee is probably not the problem. Right. Mm-hmm. And I've always talked about that in like a, a top down or a bottom up sort of problem. Is it a hip issue? Is it a foot issue? Is there a way for the at-home cyclist to tell the difference easily? Maybe they don't have somebody that can do a full eval on them and Mm -hmm. understand their forefoot varus or whatever else. Is there a way to tell it apart which one they should focus on from the shoe or from the hip? You know, I've had lots of guys send me videos of themselves from the front and the side attempting to find help. And and occasionally I can identify it from a video for self-care. I don't think you can fit yourself. I mean... So let's say I'm a pretty good fitter, but I go get looked at once a year myself because mm-hmm. I cannot fit myself. Although I, I can recognize whether I'm square on my saddle. And as a saddle developer, I've sat on every kind of saddle known to man. And I've created knee pain and back pain by being on the wrong saddle. This wasn't part of your question, but I want to state it here. The saddle is the center of the fit universe. If you have hand pain, it can be the saddle. If you've got back pain, it can be the saddle. If you have knee pain, it can be the saddle. So it is the center of the fit universe. So can a guy self-diagnose? If he lives in the upper UP and there's not a qualified fitter for miles, wow. There are some good books out there. I'm not going to blow my own horn, but there's others. Yeah, I, I, I think finding that rural fitter is a tough tough question. Well, let's not go too deep in that one because believe it or not, we have a question about that coming up. So let's stick to this one. Trevor, did you have any more thoughts on on the knee health? Not too much. I mean, the only thing I'm going to add, continuing with the two of you talked about, as a coach, you know, I always encourage my athletes to get fit and to get fit regularly. And whenever I have an athlete who gets fit for the first time, they, they call me up afterwards and they just go, Oh, you won't believe this, but I have a leg length discrepancy and they had to do all these things with my shoes and describe it all to me. And and my response is always, you want to shock me? Tell me that your legs are exactly the same length and they need to do no adjustment because I've yet to hear that. And it's just, it's where none of us are made perfectly. And if you're not taking care of that position on the bike, if you're not getting fit and adjusted, that's where you can start having issues. 
because you're not perfectly symmetrical. Your legs are not exactly the same length. Well, Trevor, I was in fact made perfectly, but unfortunately I broke my hip. So now I have a leg length discrepancy. There you go. Well, you've been working with me for five months, so you're thoroughly broken. Okay, boys. <laughs> so <laughs> the body is not symmetrical as we would like to believe, right? There's even a condition where the organs are swapped inside of some people or they're on the wrong side. So cycling should be a sport for life. I have a couple of elderly neighbors and they leave on their bike ride every morning and she's on a tricycle and he's on a regular muscular two-wheel bike and off they go. And I was, you know, 30 miles from home the other day and thought, my God, there's my neighbor. So cycling should be kind to your body. But because of the number of revolutions per minute, per hour, any mild asymmetry that we might have, whether it be a leg length inequality, foot being longer than the other, your pelvis isn't perfectly symmetrical, so you may have one sit bone slightly longer or wider than the other side, so with the revolutions required to be a cyclist, they get magnified by those revolutions. So finding a good, reputable fitter and having that fit evaluated at least on an annual basis if you're riding more than twice a week is the best advice I can give you for health as a cyclist. Andy, I love that you brought that up because it was a great transition to a question I was going to ask. Cycling is a very repetitive sport. You literally locked in position, doing the same motion over and over again. Could Jen or could anyone else like her who are trying to increase their volume, could they get some relief from maybe splitting their volume up and riding different bikes, not just on your road bike for every mile? Kind of like runners will maybe rotate shoes. You know, if she spent some time on a gravel bike and a road bike and a mountain bike, would that help alleviate some of the repetitive issues? You're such a clever boy. One of the things I really always would tell especially young riders, you need to share the stress. I managed the specialized junior team for several seasons, and I made the boys do at least two different disciplines, and they had to train all the different disciplines. I really believe in shared stresses. So runners change shoes. I actually think cyclists can change shoes on a regular basis or change pedal systems just as part of the sharing of stresses. And a lot of people are afraid of you know, my God, I've got to put new cleats on. I'm petrified. If your window of comfort is so small, you probably require a little bit more float in your pedal system, for example. But I do believe in shared stresses. And I think coaches really need to take that into account and make sure that athletes are sharing stresses and not be in the same position doing the same workouts week after week after week. I love it. That's great. Anything else on this topic, guys, or should we uh, move on to the next question? I've been curing this next one because this is not a topic I enjoy. So let's move on and uh, let Dr. Pruitt take this one. Hey, coaches, we have a new guide for you at FastTalkLabs.com called How to Grow Your Coaching Business. In this free downloadable playbook, Coach Philip Hatzis explores how coaches like you can grow profits, create opportunities, and reach your growth goals, no matter how big or small. Visit FastTalkLabs.com now to get this free download.
Okay, so Andy is going to be the default person to answer the question about pain in the nether regions. <laughs> this is just from an, an RCCO. It came in across the forum. I'm going to call you Rocco. Hopefully that's accurate. It's probably not. Question is this. Hi, everyone. I'm a reasonably fast 50-year-old male recreational cyclist. This last few months, I've suffered with the cyclist syndrome pudundal neuralgia. I have pretty much had to give up cycling and sitting down in general due to the constant tingling, burning, and pain in my nether regions. I've tried to go on to a low inflammation diet, started taking CBD oil, spent time off the bike, bought a standing desk, but it's still with me all the time. And it's a literal pain in the butt. Has anyone come across this before? Oh, gee, have we ever come across it, right? So think about anatomy for a second. And this is, you know, everybody thinks that uh, in the nether reasons, uh, men and women are, are very, very different. In reality, they're not very, very different. The blood supply, the nerve supply, et cetera, are, are very similar. The organs in which they innervate and provide blood to are slightly different, but in all realities, they're fairly similar. The pudendal nerve is the nerve that feeds the genitalia, and it is comes down from the pelvis into the genitalia split between right and left. It's just inside of your sit bones or your ischial tuberosities. Normally, it's very well protected in soft tissues, fat, muscle, skin, gristle, all protect the pudundal nerve as well as the uh, urethra that runs down through there and the primary uh, artery and vein that run through the same regions. They're all protected in soft tissues and are found inside of the sit bone. So for this gentleman, he had to have suffered either a repetitive injury to it or a one-time injury to it. I had one patient that was a cowboy, and he was walking on top of a fence and slipped and straddled the rail. Oh. And he, everybody cringed. Just so you know. <laughs> well, we've, we've all seen the crashes in the top tubes. We've all seen the supposedly funny videos. Top tubes break. I don't know that fence rails do. Fence rails. Well, but he, but he crushed his pudundal nerve. And that was a long-term, obviously a long-term uh, issue. But it's that, so this can be a one-time trauma or it can be multi-minor traumas. And that's kind of what cycling does on a bad saddle. If you find yourself riding on the nose of the saddle, it's going to work its way up in between those sit bones and, and irritate the pudundal nerve or nerves by repeated micro trauma. So the fact that this guy actually has diagnosed pudundal nerve palsy means that it was a significant injury. And, and I suspect he's one of those uh, individuals where his nerve either lies more superficial and wasn't protected, or he is a very lean fit 50 year old. I think he said he was. So I would suspect that his saddle has been too narrow for a long period of time, and he's been micro-traumatizing the pudundal nerves. Nerves, we used to think really once gone, were gone. But when now we do know, they do regenerate. So in time, he should get better. I don't know whether the CBD oil is going to be concentrated on his groin. I'm a believer in CBD, but I'm not, I don't see that as a, playing a huge role here. There are therapies. I would suggest he find a pelvic floor specialist and it can be a um, urologist, it can be a neurologist. The nether regions, as they call them, is kind of where orthopedics, urology, and neurology all kind of come together in that region. 
So there's usually a, a team approach to treating a pudonal neurology, and that is usually a neurologist, a urologist, and a physical therapist. Physical strengthening of the pelvic floor is crucial. So the fact that he has pain and just sitting, that's beyond cyclist palsy. That's a whole nother thing. It's much broader. So he, he probably, I would guess, is a guy whose nerve is totally unprotected. So there are cushions that you know you travel with. You got them in your car. You got them in your dining room chair. You avoid hard chairs, all those things. So I'm not sure I'm going to help this guy's therapy plan at the moment, but saddle choice. I'm going to go back to the saddle is the center of the fit universe. So I would suspect that this guy has been on the wrong saddle for a long time and created this, this issue. And he's, he, needs to stay, he needs to stay off the bike until this resolves. And going back to the bike, it could be a noseless saddle. It, there's lots of therapeutic ways to go back to the bike. Andy, you said something that I thought was interesting and I'd love to dig into a bit more. And, and I understand we're not diagnosing anything. Let's throw that medical disclaimer out there right now. But do you feel like this is, when people get to this level, is this more of an issue where the nerve just needs to regenerate and grow? Or is it a lingering inflammation what is actually causing all of this pain? Like, and is things like a low inflammation diet, CBD oil, are those just misaligned because it's not an inflammation problem? I don't think they're misaligned, but I wouldn't look for them to be miraculous. Time is going to be this guy's best physician. The nerve is inflamed, it's damaged. So if you think about a nerve like a garden hose, right? So your garden hose is laying across your driveway and it's watering your garden. And as long as that water's flowing just dandy, then the garden's going to flourish. If somebody steps on the garden hose, the water's going to get through there, you know. If somebody stomps on the, the garden hose repeatedly, it's going to become damaged and the water flow is going to decrease. If somebody parks their car on the garden hose, then the, the flower garden's going to die. So this guy's flower garden isn't dying. Somebody's been stomping on it. And the garden hose has to be uh, let alone long enough to return to its tubular functional size. And so it can conduct that water or nerve pathways, whichever the case may be. Trevor, any thoughts on this topic? I know you didn't want to touch it before, but you want to touch it now? Yeah, I'm just going to say what I think is the message here. And Dr. Prude, you and I have been around long enough to remember the days of really bad saddles and uh, chamois that you could barely call chamois and how miserable that was and how nice it is now with the the saddles that are out and the, the chamois that are out. And the message I'm getting from you, which I agree completely with, is get a good saddle, get the right saddle for you. And if you're going to invest some money in something, invest in a decent chamois because these are going to make a, a big difference in your cycling experience and prevent issues like this. But before we go totally away, let's talk about the differences in men and women, right? There's so many similarities, but there are differences. So the guy usually says, you know, I'm only numb for a few minutes after I get off my bike. That tells me he needs a bike fit or a new saddle. The guy that says, I'm numb for an hour, I have true sexual dysfunction. Those are male-related issues that have an obvious need to fix, right? The women have a different anatomy, and their soft tissue takes a different kind of abuse as a cyclist. And it's really labial compression or labial swelling that leads to scarring for women. So 
we studied for two years and, and finally designed a saddle to maybe, we called it mimic, to mimic the soft tissue pressures. And then we suddenly found that 30% of those saddles were being bought by dudes, right? And one of them was ridden at the Paris-Roubaix and then the Tour de France. And all of a sudden, boom, it was okay for men to, to ride this saddle that was designed to mimic women's genitalia and kind of caress and, and support versus pressurize. So the women's issue is far more labial and the men's issue is more functional. So you want to go into a shop where you feel comfortable as a male or a female to help guide yourself to the right saddle choice. There's ways to measure pelvises at retail now that help at least start a conversation toward the right width saddle, which is crucial. The types of densities and a foam I have improved immensely. So saddle development is changing every day, and I encourage people to really search out and find the right saddle. Now, Andy, I don't know if you feel free to talk about this, but if you remember back years and years ago when we were at BCSM, we started a pilot study mm-hmm. where we were looking at sensitivity of genitalia after riding. Mm-hmm. And listeners, it did involve electrodes and, and clips and everything else that you can imagine. And you know, if I remember correctly, something that was seen during that was women actually had an increased sensitivity as opposed to men that have a numbness. Women had increased sensitivity of soft tissue. And that just seems totally opposite from what we would expect. And and maybe because all we ever talk about is numbness, the message isn't getting out there that, hey, this is a problem too. So yes, we did do a study where we placed uh, electrodes that were meant to measure uh, nerve conductivity in burn victims, and these were women subjects only, looking for is there decreased uh, sensation in the women's genitalia after a two-hour bike ride. And yes, you're right. What we found was there was an excitation of tissues. I think had we done that long-term with the same subjects over a period of years, I think we would have seen, I know we would have seen, a change in those tissues and scarring. There would be a loss of sensitivity in those tissues over time. So the edema and the loss of blood flow due to this compression of the labia over time, as a matter of fact, the, the woman that ran that original study for us was a subject of mine years later for labial scarring. So it's an ongoing area of, of study for cyclists, both men and women, no doubt. Finally, we're talking about it, right? For years, you just didn't talk about it. It's part of cycling. Oh, yeah, I go numb for a while. That's okay. It's part of cycling. And women, yeah, it's crushing myself, but my dad says I got to be tough and suck it up. So it's happening now, finally. We're talking about it. We're talking about men's erectile dysfunction. We're talking about labial scarring, and it's finally out there even at the retail level. I'm so pleased that I had a role in it. Awesome. Glad to hear. And I do want to move on because we have a great question from Tom Mayer that's about constant adaptation with age. Hmm. This is a long question, so, so try to hang with me. Just been listening to your podcast on adaptation and recovery. It prompted a possibly rambling thought in my mind, perhaps having just turned 40, but is adaptation possible throughout life? Or does adaptation mean adaptation that is perhaps just combating the decline of age? On a simplistic level, for example, is it possible to keep building one's aerobic base over the years, increasing genuine FTP, but at a slow rate? Or could everyone reach their ceiling regardless of age? 
And if there is a ceiling, then how do we improve? Is it to look for other areas to improve? What incentive is there other than to not minimize the loss of performance? For a somewhat cynical viewpoint, could I drop my training for a year and then expect to be able to get back to where I was had I still been training? Just a few thoughts. I suppose querying whether we are just like hamsters on a wheel trying to, wow, he's getting off into the... <laughs> I do think that there is a purpose to life and a purpose to training, uh, even when we get old. But, um, you know, Trevor, you've, you've definitely worked with a lot of athletes that are probably asking this, this same question. You know, what advice do you have here? Well, the answer I give athletes who ask me this question of, well, I'm getting older, so am I just trying to prevent the climb? I'm going to give you kind of the, the flippant answer, which is, yeah, if you were somebody who was winning the Tour de France and you're turning 40, you're going downhill. There's not much you can do about it, but that's because that Tour de France winner got pretty darn close to their full genetic potential. And that potential is, has started to decline and there's not much you can do about it. Most of us don't get anywhere close to our potential. So even when you're in your 40s and your potential is declining, there's still a lot of room for you to improve and become a better endurance athlete before you, you butt into that ceiling. So I don't think people should look in and say, I've now hit 40, all I'm doing is declining and trying to, to reduce that decline. I've seen a lot of athletes who had their best years in their 50s, and, and even a few have seen their best years in their 60s. Absolutely. There's a couple pieces to this. Can you take a year off and come back? So I think your years off and your ability to come back are best served in your youth. <laughs> I think if you take a year off as a 20-year-old and go off to medical school or whatever and, and then come back, we've, we've seen it, right? We've seen men and women go away from the sport for educational purposes or military service and come back and reach the absolute pinnacle of their sport. So in, in those certain age groups, I think it's very much possible. As the master's athlete, how old was this guy in the question? 50? 40. He just turned 40. Just turned 40. So he's still got a lot of room, uh, I think. So I guess we've all used ourselves here at least once today. So I was a high-level cyclist in my mid-30s, won a couple of world championships, retired, started Boulder Center Sports Medicine, worked like crazy for 20-plus years. I, I rode, but I didn't train, got my butt kicked by guys much older than me that were uh, not working as much. So I retire at 65 with a one goal, to get really fit again. And I did it. And, and I have surpassed my measured lots at lactate threshold. I'm riding today at 72 at a level that I did in my 30s. Can I keep up with the 30-year-olds? No, there's other musculoskeletal declines as well. But as far as my capacity is concerned... So I would suggest your, your listener read Joe Friel's book, Faster After 50. That book is full of stuff, which I live by. So as we age, I think quality is much more important than quantity. I've been racing bikes for 40 years. Think how much mileage I have built into my system. It doesn't take me much to get ready for a century. Now, if I want to go fast for 20K or 40K, that's much harder. So... I think it, it, as we age, quality becomes, and, and you two physiologists can, can speak up here, but I think quality becomes much more important than quantity as we age. 
and there is huge potential to improve as we age. Yeah, for me, it's training smarter. Yeah. You know, yeah. I know that I'm 40 now this year, make that public to everybody. You know, and here's the thing, life, kids, getting kids to soccer, getting kids to bike practice. Sometimes when my kids are at bike practice is the only time I get to ride my bike myself, right? Mm -hmm. And so we need to be smarter about how we train. I think if you're 18, I've worked with a lot of youth cyclists, you can throw anything at them and they're going to adapt. When you're 40, maybe that doesn't happen anymore, at least not with the readiness to adapt there. But as Andy's saying, if you're smart about it, if you can put in the time, if you can do the other things, the strength training, the things to help you recover, so on and so forth, then yeah, you can definitely keep moving toward that potential. Like Trevor said, not many of us are actually reaching our true sporting potential. Let's, let's be honest, right? And that potential might be coming down a little bit, but we can certainly close that gap with good, smart training. And recovery. You're 40, I still could recover. 50, a little less, but so... Ned Overin, good friend of mine, and as also has a sidebar in Joe's book, Faster After 50, I asked Ned, here he is in his 50s and 60s, still winning elite races. I said, Ned, how are you doing this? He said, I still do today the same thing I did when I was 20 and 30. And I said, really? He said, yeah, a six-week block now takes me 12 weeks. <laughs> so he still does the same intervals, the same particular workouts that made him great as a youth. He's still doing them and taking twice as much rest to recover. I think quality and rest as we age, your 40-year-old listener can absolutely improve. Absolutely. So I'm going to throw out two bits of, of what happens with our physiology as we age. It's actually really going to back what both of you said. You know, one most people are aware of, which is as we get older, our aerobic engine actually continues to improve for a long time. It's our anaerobic strength or power that tends to decline. So as we get older, we become these pure aerobic animals. So going back to your point about it's the quality, not the quantity. If when you were younger, you've done a fair amount of base training and you have a good aerobic engine, you don't have to worry as much about losing that. You still have to feed the beast, but you know that's that's not what's declining with age. It's that anaerobic side that's going to decline if you're not spending a lot of time working on it. So that's the you need a little more quality work. You need to hit that top end more to to prevent your body from losing that. You know, another thing that's really interesting with age is and I have to explain a little bit of physiology here, but when we talk about muscle fibers, you actually talk about neuromuscular patterns or groupings. Um, so basically, almost never in the body will a single nerve innervate a single muscle fiber. Normally, you have a single nerve that's innervating multiple muscle fibers. And so when that nerve fires, all those muscle fibers will fire. One thing they've shown with age when somebody doesn't take care of themselves is you'll actually see muscle fibers disconnect from a nerve and become isolated. And eventually another nerve will re-innervate that fiber. But what you see is a decrease in the, the number of nerves. And you see the, the nerves that are left are innervating a lot more muscle fibers than they used to. And again, because it's an on and off switch, a nerve fires and all the, the fibers attached will then activate or contract. 
if you've got bigger groups, you have less motor control, less fine control of those muscles. And that's going to affect your sports performance later. And they have shown if you're doing strength work, if you're doing neuromuscular work, if you're doing that off the bike type work, you can prevent a lot of that, the muscle fibers becoming de-innervated and then joining another group and, and uh, that age effect. It's not something that's inevitable. And I hope I explained that well. I'm trying to, to keep it simple. One of my dear friends that I've ridden race bikes for 40 years tells me that he's lost his motivation to train hard. He loves to ride his bike. He wants to ride at least every other day, if not two days on, one off for hours. But when I tell him we're going to go do hill repeats or going to ride in a pace line for three hours, he's lost his motivation to do it. And I think what it tells me is that, that the stuff we need to do as we age hurts, right? The kind of training that we need to do as we age is the stuff that hurts. It's spinnervals, it's sprints, it's high-intensity intervals. Those suckers are uncomfortable, but that's what we actually need. You know what? Medicine tastes bad. And that's what we need to do as we age is more of that stuff. And, and my friend says, I've just lost my motivation to hurt, but I've not lost my motivation to ride my bike. Yep. But you know, I have a friend who was a fantastic racer, multiple time national champion. And in his mid fifties, he, he quit racing. And I asked him why. And he just said, I couldn't hurt myself the way I used to. And I knew I couldn't win races anymore if I couldn't hurt that much. I like that part of the training. I hate the long stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather, I'd rather you, go do intervals and go home. And yeah, you've been like that since the day I met you. So that, that's not something that's happened as you've aged. It's because I was a sprinter as a kid, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so anyway. I get it. We all know how much it sucks to bonk, especially on race day. Don't wait until the last minute to think about your race day nutrition. Get your race day nutrition plan today at fasttalklabs.com. All right, guys. Well, I think it's time to wrap this one up, even though we actually had a couple more questions. We'll have to save that for another time. Dr. Pruitt, real pleasure to have you on the show. Those are fantastic answers as, as we knew we would get from you. So I really think the listeners are going to enjoy it and, and really appreciate your joining us. I enjoy it immensely. I, ho I hope they enjoy it and I hope you invite me back because I could sit here and talk like this all day. Well, I think that episode 220 was at least as good as episode nine, but uh, everyone listen and let, let us know what you thought about it. And uh, we'll definitely do it again. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com join to become a part of our education and coaching community. For Dr. Andy Pruitt and Trevor Connor, I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening. <laughs>